Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 719 with Liz Weissman. Liz has been recommended numerous times by numerous guests, so I think you're going to love what she has to say about the key five practices that make you a high-impact player, one of those indispensable people that folks love working with who make all the difference. You'll learn, one, why it's okay to not be working on what's important to you, two, the five things that impact players do differently. And three, the trick to leading without invitation. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to some of the resources that we mentioned here, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP719. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out some cool stuff like our full text searchable transcripts or the gold nugget summaries, which give you a summary write-up of the actionable wisdom that Liz shares right to your inbox the day the episode goes out, as well as unlocking the whole vault of these 719 such summaries. That's called the Gold Nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. And here's a quick bit about Liz. Liz Wiseman is a researcher and executive advisor who teaches leadership to executives around the world. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter, The Multiplier Effect, Tapping the Genius Inside Our Schools, and the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Rookie Smarts, Why Learning Beats Knowing in the Game of Work. She is the CEO of the Wiseman Group, a leadership research and development firm headquartered in Silicon Valley who has served some really cool clients like Apple and Tesla, Nike, and a whole lot more. She's been listed on the Thinkers 50 ranking and in 2019 was recognized as the top leadership thinker in the world. She's written a lot of great stuff for publications like the Harvard Business Review and Fortune. She's a frequent guest lecturer at BYU and Stanford and as a former executive of Oracle, where she worked as the vice president of Oracle University and as the global leader for their human resources development. Big thanks to Liz for sharing her wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here is Liz. Liz, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Well, thanks, Pete. I hope I walk away feeling like I can be a little bit more awesome at my job. This is your thing. This is what you do. Oh, well, I think I've mentioned uh, before we pushed record that numerous people have mentioned you by name as being awesome at your job from your book, Multipliers. And uh, you've got another one, Freshly Out, Impact Players, How to Take the Lead, Play Baker, and Multiply Your Impact, all things we love doing here. So... This is going to be a lot of fun. This is going to be a fun conversation. I can tell. 
Mm-hmm. Well, so maybe to kick us off, could you share with us your favorite story of someone who made a transformation into an impact player and what happened? What was the impact of that and kind of their, their before and after and the results flowing from it? Oh, well, so many of the people I wrote about like were already awesome when I stumbled onto them. And the one I think that like if I could pick someone in the book who made the biggest transformation, it might have been me. Like early on in my career, reorienting myself. So I came out of college, like a lot of people, fired up. I mean, some people don't know what they want to do. I knew what I wanted to do to a fault. And I kind of was like knocking on people's doors, like, hi, I'm Liz. I want to teach leadership. And I represent good leadership and ridding the world of bad bosses. That's what I want to do. And so I tried to get a job at a management training company and somehow wiggled my way into an interview with the president. He looked at my resume and was like, you know, if you want to teach leadership, maybe you should go get some leadership experience. (laughs) You know, I was like 22 years old and thinking that's narrow minded of him. Like, (laughs) you know, kind of like he doesn't get me. This is like what I'm passionate about. It's what I want to do. So I went and took my backup job, and that one was at Oracle, which was a great place to go to work, but it wasn't doing what I really wanted to do, which was somehow teach managing and leading. So I took this consolation job, and about a year into that, I had an opportunity to transfer to another group inside of the company. This is back when Oracle's like a couple thousand people, and today they're like well over a hundred thousand people. And it was a group that ran technical boot camps and I was hoping that their charter would expand, like the company's growing, they're surely going to be building some management courses, young people are being thrown into management, it's like wreaking havoc on the company. And so I went into the interview, answered the questions from the VP, this is like the final interview for this job, and then it was my turn to take charge of the interview. And so I made my case for why Oracle should build a management boot camp, not just a technology boot camp. And of course, I offered my services. Like, I would be happy to build this. And I thought for sure he would say, Oh, that's great, Liz. Yeah, I can see you're passionate about that. Mm-hmm. Like, here you go. And, and his response, I mean, it really, really imprinted me. And he was polite, but essentially, what I heard him saying was, Liz, make yourself useful around here. Because his reply was, you know, that's great, Liz. We think you're great. And we're excited to have you join this group. But your boss has a different problem. She's got to figure out how to get 2,000 new college graduates up to speed in Oracle technology over the next year. And what would be great is if you could help her to do that. He was saying, Liz, like, figure out what needs to be done, like, and, and do the things that we need. And I wanted to teach leadership, and now he wants me to teach programming to a bunch of nerds, you know, programmers. <laughs> and and I'm like, oh, that's not my thing. That's not the job I want. But I could see he was teaching me something. I'm like, that's not the job I want. But what he's saying is that's the job that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. So, like, point yourself over there, please. And it really shaped me. Because I said, okay, I don't want to do that, but I will do that. And I'll figure out how to be good at this. And I'm like, Pete, I'm woefully underqualified to do this job. I came out of business school and, you know, had a teaching background, but I mean, I had taken like two and a half programming classes in college. And now they want me to be teaching programming to a bunch of hotshot programmers coming out of MIT and Caltech. And 
But I did it. And it was amazing what happened after I reoriented myself and in some ways subordinated what was important to me to work on what was important to my boss and my boss's boss. That first of all, I figured out I love this job. Mm. Like this was fun. I was having the time of my life. And then the second thing I discovered is that by doing that, all of these opportunities opened up to me. And, you know, they came and tapped me on the shoulder and say, Liz, we want you to now manage the training group. I'm like, yeah, I'm having fun teaching. And they're like, no, we want you to do this. I'm like, yeah, pick someone else who wants that job. And they said, no, we want you to do this. And I don't know if it was because I understood like the technology or it was because I was willing to serve where I was needed. But I finally said yes to that job. And then I just kept getting bigger and bigger opportunities. And I think it was because I learned to channel my energy and passion around what was important to the people I worked for rather than focusing on what was important to me. Mm -hmm. And it shaped my whole career and just allowed me to do work that was far more impactful. And, you know, it wasn't too many years, if not even months after that, that I was able to argue that, you know what, we really need to invest in management training and I'd be happy to do that. And then I essentially got a blank check like Liz, absolutely go build that, build a team to do it. And that work had so much more impact when I decided to work on the agenda of the organization rather than on my own agenda. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's a, that feels like a golden key to a whole lot of career things right there. And I guess what's intriguing is, well, one, you were fortunate in that you got to do the thing you really wanted to do anyway afterwards. And two, I suppose I'm thinking, you know, that approach, it's in a way it feels rather noble and virtuous in terms of, hey, there's there's some humility and, you know, there is some some service and generosity that you are engaging in when you're working on the job that, that needs done as opposed to the thing you want to do. I guess I, I might just want to hear to what extent was there drudgery or, or it seemed, it sounds like in your story, this path was actually plenty of fun, even while you were on it prior to doing the thing that you really wanted to do originally. Is, is that the case with the other impact players, generally speaking? Well, I think it is. And, you know, you said it was sort of a noble choice and I think it was a humble choice. I wouldn't characterize it as a noble choice as much as a savvy choice. And it wasn't like I was just like, okay, well, what's good for me in this? I could see there was a real need there. But something happens when you are working on something that's important. So like if I'm off working on my own agenda, I'm pushing a boulder up a hill. I'm trying to get people to meet with me. I'm trying to get someone to pay attention to the thing I care about. Now, some amazing things can happen when you go down that path. But like what happens when you're working on something that's important. It's what I call when you're working on the agenda. Well, every time I put myself on this like path of impact, working on something that was important to the company, the executive, one of my clients, I always find that people have time to meet with me. Resources flow. Like, you know, I've done a lot of work with executives over the years. And it's one of the things I've noticed is I've never noticed an, like a senior executive in a corporation tell me something was important to, to him or her and then not have budget for it. Mm -hmm. It's like funny how that when you're working on the agenda, people have time for you. Resources flow. Decisions happen quickly. 
there's more pressure, but there's also more visibility for your work. Like it's not drudgery. It's actually fun because you're making progress. And, you know, when you say drudgery, Pete, it makes me think about something I've been thinking a lot about lately is burnout. We're dealing with this burnout epidemic, the great reshuffle, the great resignation, whatever you want to call it. And I think we're quick to assume that burnout is a function of effort and work. Like we're working too hard. We're working too much. We have too heavy of a load and we're going to burn out as a result. And I'm I'm not opposed for anyone taking time off. Like a little R&R is probably good for a lot of people, particularly right now. But I think burnout based on all of my research, it, it tends to be a function of too little impact, not too much work. Mm-hmm. That what causes us to burn out is when we're expending energy, but not making a difference, not seeing how our work makes a difference. So like the beginning of being high impact and doing awesome work is doing work that is valued and important and even if some of the work is tedious, like, oh man, I remember like nights I stayed up till five in the morning trying to like learn how to do correlated subquery so I could teach them the next day. I couldn't sustain that all the time, but like I was making a difference. I was having an impact. I was doing something important. It was energizing, not enervating. And yeah, there's details and drudgery and hard things involved, but it's rewarding. It's what I've seen mm-hmm. in my own experience and studying these high impact contributors. Yeah. It's a buildup experience, not a burnout experience. Yeah. That's beautiful in terms of, that's just a fundamental distinction that, that does so much when you're working on the agenda, what's important to other folks. So many of the roadblocks that are annoying and frustrating and yield to burnout and exhaustion disappear. People are available. They make time for you. They make money for you. They take your meetings. You've got some, some support and backing as opposed to being ignored and follow-ups. So, so yeah, like that's pretty fun. And you build voice in the organization and it's how we build influence and credibility is by making progress on things that matter to our stakeholders. And so as we do that, and as we serve, people listen to us. And by working on the agenda, you earn the right to help set the agenda. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm loving this, and that's a lot of insight right there. So, so tell me, is that pretty much the the core idea or thesis of impact players, or how would you articulate it? Oh, I just think it's it's one of the starting points is how people orient themselves, and I think if I were to kind of try to crystallize the thesis of impact players, let me start with the research. We looked at the difference between individuals who were considered by their leaders smart, hardworking, and capable people who were doing a good job. Uh like doing well versus smart, hardworking, capable people who were making an extraordinary impact, doing work of extraordinary or inordinately high value. And so this isn't like top performers versus bottom performers, like in a room full of equally smart, capable, hardworking people, why are some people stuck going through the motions of their job while other people are making a big difference? Yeah. So that's what we looked at. And when I looked at those differentials and all the profiles that we built through interviewing 170 managers is we found that the ordinary contributors, typical contributors, people doing well, they're doing their job. 
Mm-hmm. And this is how managers describe it. They're, they do their job. They do their job well, often extremely well. They follow direction. They take ownership. They are focused. They carry their weight on teams, which sounds great mm-hmm. in some ways, like ideal team members and contributors. But they're stellar in ordinary times, but they tend to fall short in times of uncertainty and ambiguity. This is where the impact players handle these situations very differently. And there were five and it was how they handle like messy problems. Like it's not your job. It's not my job. It's like no one's job. It's not really owned by this department. That It's like no one's job, but everyone's job. And, and this is actually where I think the most important problems and opportunities of an organization sit in that white space yeah. between boxes. Now, in this case, ordinary contributors tend to do their job, whereas the impact players go do the job that needs to be done. Uh The second is how they handle unclear roles where, okay, I know we're collaborating, but like, who's really in charge? We're having a tendency, you know, organizations want to have more collaborative teams, flatten organizations, but, you know, in these situations, typical contributors tend to wait for role clarification or direction, like wait for someone to tell them who's in charge or give them formal authority, whereas the people who are having a lot of impact tend to just take charge. But they're not like take charge all the time. They step up and they lead, maybe a particular meeting, maybe a project, but then they're as willing to step back and follow other people when they're in the lead. So it's like they bring kind of big leadership, let's say to the two o'clock meeting, they're the boss, but they then walk down the hall to the three o'clock meeting And they serve as a participant with the same kind of energy that they led the team. So they're able to step in and out of these leadership roles really fluidly, which really builds our credibility because we trust these leaders, the ones who don't always need to hold all the power. Yeah. And the ones who care when it's not theirs, quote unquote. I mean, that's sort of endearing. It's sort of like, okay, you care about this because you care about the team, the leadership, the project, the company, and not just you care about your babies. Oh, absolutely. It's like they work with the same kind of level of intensity. They don't need to be in charge, but they're willing to be in charge. And I think it's a really powerful form of leadership. And it's very much like if you take like the pyramid shape of an organization and you turn that on its side, it's more like the V formation of a flock of geese. Uh where the flock can fly a lot further because they rotate that leadership. You know, one bird goes out in front, leads, breaks that wind, creates drag, creates an ease for the other birds behind in that formation. But that lead bird doesn't stay there forever, like until it tires and then like falls from the sky in, in a state of exhaustion, which is what happens so often in corporations. The leaders are running around with their hair on fire. They're like all fired up. They're working hard, but other people sit underutilized. Yeah. Like when the lead bird has done their like duty for the team, they fall back and another moves into that role. Mm-hmm. And then there's three other situations where we see this differentiation when unforeseen obstacles drop in the way things that are really out of your control. Most people tend to escalate those, whereas the impact players just tend to hold on to them and get them across the finish line. Not alone, pulling in help, but they tend to just hold ownership all the way through. When targets are moving fast, typical contributors tend to stay on target. They stay focused, whereas the impact players adjust. 
Mm-hmm. They're adapting. They're changing. They're like kind of waking up, assuming while I was asleep, the world changed and I probably need to adjust my aim. So I stay on track with what's important and relevant. And And the last is what we do when workloads are heavy, like when there's just mounting workloads, when the workloads increasing faster than resources are increasing. And, you know, most people, they carry their weight, but when times get really tough, they sort of look upward and outward for, for help to ease that burden. Whereas the impact players we found, they, they really make work light. Like they don't take all the work. They don't take people's workload away from them, but they work in a way where hard work just is fun. Mm-hmm. They bring a levity, a humanity that just eases the phantom workload so that people can focus on the real workload. That's kind of what I found. All right. Well, well I was going to ask exactly that. So thank you for sharing. <laughs> and so that's sort of like the, the five core distinctions. And I, I want to zoom in on a couple like super specific practices, habits, but first, maybe I'd like to get your take on what discovery in the course of all of these interviews did you find most surprising or counterintuitive? Mm-hmm. This probably tells you I've got a little bit of a pessimist in me, which maybe makes me a better researcher. But when we went into study, like what is it that the top, real top contributors are doing? I expected there to be a fair number of hotshots and superstars and, you know, people around whom the team revolved. And what I found was exactly the opposite. There was 170 of these impact players that we studied, analyzed. Not a single one of them was a prima donna, a bully, mm-hmm. a bull in a china shop. You know, not one of them worked at the expense of the team. Like, hey, I'm so good at what I do that you all need to kind of like be backup for me or accommodate me, humor me. They were superstars and everyone knew it. Like that's one of the things about impact players is everyone knows who these people are, uh-huh. but they work. And I think they're comfortable with their stellarness, their awesomeness. <laughs> like they're, they get it. Yeah. They don't have to prove themselves like, or, or flex or show off. Yeah. And it, you know, in some ways, and I'm just realizing this Pete is it's one of the things I found in uh, the multiplier leaders. So the other research I've done, like, what is it that leaders do that allow people to be impactful and contribute at their fullest? And the ones, the leaders I, I want to work for are the ones that are really, really comfortable with their own intelligence and capability. Like, I want to work for someone who's an absolute genius, who knows it, which you think, ooh, well, isn't that like a know-it-all, a bully? Like, no, I want to work with someone who's so comfortable with their own intelligence and capability that they're over it. (laughs) It's not like I have to show up to work every day proving Mm -hmm. how amazing I am. It's like, yeah, I get it. I'm smart. I'm talented. I'm over it. So now I can spend my time as a leader seeing and using the intelligence of others. And I think these impact players are similar in that. Like they know that they're really valuable contributors. They know they do important and valuable work, but they don't need to be proving it all day long. In some ways, it's so obvious. Uh Yeah. They were comfortable with it. Okay. That's cool. I thought there'd be some brilliant jerks in the, in the lot, but there were at least not in my sample. And then, and these 170, they were identified by their managers as saying, boy, this guy's really an impact player. 
Yeah, they were. And so we didn't go in and decide who was. We asked managers to, you know, consider the people that they have led over their career and identify someone from each of these two categories, impact players, ordinary contributors. And we also had managers identify someone whom I later called an under contributor, smart, capable, talented, should be amazing. Like someone you hire, you're like, this person's going to be awesome, but yet they're not. Uh Like they're under contributing relative to their potential and capability. And that was, that was interesting. There's like a whole set of things to learn there. It's different than the five key distinctions that we already covered. I just assume that they don't do the things that the impact players do, or is there more? (laughs) Well, I think in that ordinary contributor station, like Mm -hmm. you would see people who are well-meaning, working hard, and they're doing their job. When you see people in that under contributor position, sort of on this stratification, you see a lot of people who are really pushing their own agenda. Okay. You often see people who are trying so hard to be valuable, trying so hard to like mm, get ahead, maybe that they're honestly annoying. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, hey, coach, how am I doing? How am I doing? Am I doing great? Did I, was that good work? Was I, mm-hmm. you know, hey, hey, coach, what you want? Can we spend, can I sit next to you on the airplane? You know what? Let, hey, let's go hang out. And they're, mm-hmm. Needy, Uh maybe needing too much attention, needing too much feedback, end up becoming more of a burden than a contributor on teams, but yet they're people who are trying really hard. Uh Interesting. Cool. Well, so then I love how we've laid out the, the five distinctions. And now I'd like to get really specific in terms of what are the particular mindsets or habits or particular practices, words, phrases, just like the the super in the moment, tactical, practical stuff that we're seeing in terms of an impact player. I sort of got the, the conceptual. Could you give us a couple of examples of, hey, these are, are the specific actions that we're seeing over and over again? We talked about the first distinction kind of through my own experience is this willingness to do the job that needs to be done. Uh It's about extending ourselves like beyond our job boundaries. One of the favorite impact players I got to write about in the book is someone named Jojo Mirador, and he is a scrub tech. He works at Valley Medical, which is a part of an academic hospital chain. So there are a lot of residents there, you know, doctors who have graduated from medical school, they're now in their training, they're in residency, and he's a surgical scrub tech. Now, Jojo's job is to prepare the surgical tools uh-huh. for an operation, so make sure they're sterilized and available, and to hand them to the surgeons when the surgeons ask for them. That's his job. But Jojo approaches his job differently than other scrub techs. First of all, he looks on the calendar and he's like, what surgeries do we have coming up? Are there any that I'm not familiar with? Let me look. Let me just like Google that and figure out what's going on in the surgery. And during surgery, he's not just listening for the requested instruments. Scalpel. Yeah, scalpel. Exactly. (laughs) It's like such a a moment. He's, He's watching the surgeon's hands. He's like, I want to know what what the surgeon is doing because I want to know what their next move is going to be because I want to be thinking about the tool they need. So I'm ready. Uh, One of the surgeons told me, Jojo doesn't just lay out the instruments. He lays them out in the order they're going to be used. So he's got them ready. And when the surgeons ask for an instrument, he doesn't just hand them the one they ask for. He hands them the one they actually need. So let's say they've asked for like scalpels, like, and then he provides a gentle suggestion. He's like, you know, why don't you try this one instead? It might work better. 
Mm-hmm. See, of course, these resins, they're young, they're new. And yeah. you can imagine like the pressure on them to like look like they know what they're doing when they're holding someone's lives in their hands. And you can imagine how grateful they are that he doesn't just do his job. He extends himself and does the job that needs to be done. And, you know, you would think that the senior surgeons wouldn't want these suggestions, but they do. In fact, he said, it kind of feels good. They come seek me out before a surgery to say, Jojo, here's what we're going to be doing. What kinds of tools do you think are going to work best here? Uh You know, and they line up outside of the scheduler's office to they kind of fight a little bit over who gets to have Jojo (laughs) in the OR with them. And they found this like nice gentleman's way of sorting this out. It's whoever has the most complicated procedure is the one who gets Jojo. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I love the imagery of this, which is just extending ourselves out of our job scope, but not doing it in an aggressive way of taking over. It's like done with this kind of sense of finesse of, I think I can be helpful here. Uh And another one of the behaviors we see is that these impact players, they don't tend to wait for an invitation. Uh You know, I think a lot of people are who want to be amazing at their job, who have a lot of passion, who have a lot of talent, or maybe holding back a little bit too much waiting for someone to come along and discover them. Uh And maybe it's because I've spent most of my career teaching leaders, coaching executives is part of my message to people is like, Ooh, your leaders probably aren't thinking about you nearly as much as you think they're thinking about you. Like they've got their own set of things and they probably don't have time to like figure out, okay, wait a minute, I've got this meeting coming up. Who are all the possible people who might be valuable contributors? Like sometimes we need to invite ourselves in and go where we're uninvited, but do it in a way that people are glad we showed up to contribute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting because I think this has come up a number of times like, oh, so many meetings you attend, it's unnecessary, it's a waste of time, and and you should figure out polite ways to excuse yourself from them. And this might be the first time I've heard someone say, there may be times where you want to try to get into a meeting that you weren't invited to, and the way that could be super appreciated, like, maybe you could give us some, some verbiage or an example there, because I can imagine ways you might say it that could come across as appreciated as opposed to like, whoa, hey, stay in your lane, buddy. Could you give us an example there? Yeah, let me share two. One is about just initiating meetings that no one's asking you to do. Ellie Vonderkamp at Target, she's a project manager there, and her job is to get all the technology in a Target store up to speed and ready to go before a store opens. Well, this isn't her area of responsibility, but she can see that you know what, we've been dropping phone land phone lines in here. And, you know, her job is to get them up and running, but she's like, I don't think we actually need those phone lines because now that we have fiber optic cables, the phone lines that were needed for the alarm systems in the store, you know, like fire alarms, uh-huh. like we don't need those, but it wasn't that they didn't need them. They sometimes need them. And it was sort of complicated and no one's asking her to do this, but she realizes the company is wasting money on this. And, you know, it's a $92 billion a year company. It's not a significant amount of waste in a company that size, but it's significant enough. She decides she wants to do something about it. So she just invites herself to lead this meeting, calls people together, explains a problem with no sense of judgment whatsoever. Uh-huh. But we have this problem and we're like, buying phone lines that we don't need and it's wasting money. And she just lays it out and invites people to step up 
and solve it. And, you know, it was a complex decision tree. They, they worked it all out. Owners stepped up, emerged, the problem solved, and she steps back. It's sort of like inviting yourself into lead and volunteering to lead where nobody has asked you. Now, it could be inviting yourself to a meeting nobody is inviting to. I had experience with this. It was probably midway through my career. It preceded the most valuable piece of work I ever did for Oracle. Mm-hmm. And I think at this point, like I'm the vice president of Oracle University, I run training for the company in human resource development. And I'm particularly been focusing on some executive development and had been working with the three top executives to build this, you know, what was our flagship leadership development program. We called it the Leaders Forum. And it really consisted of two parts, which is teach our executives around the world, like, our strategy. So they really understood that and then build some leadership skills. And in the process of doing this, it became clear that the strategy was not clear. So we were bringing executives in like 30 people at a time, presenting the strategy to them, building some skills, sending them on their way. And they're like, you know, strategy is not clear. So the three executives I was building this program with, we like, we heard the feedback and we tried to make some adjustments. It's still not clear. Finally, we kind of, it comes to a head and we realize we have to stop these training programs until the strategy for the company is clear. I'm in that meeting. We decide this needs to happen. One of the three executives says, okay, you know what? I'll get together a meeting of all of our product heads, all of the senior executives, and we will clarify this strategy. Okay. So I know that meeting is happening, but I'm not included in this meeting because it's a product strategy meeting and I'm responsible for training. But the meeting was happening the next week, and I decided that I probably should go to that meeting, not just to listen in, that I felt like I could really help. Mm. And so this is, I don't know, this was a meeting of, let's say, nine of the top 12 executives in the company. And I just decided to show up. And so I show up. I knew the president would be thrilled that I was there. Maybe not some of the others, but I get there early. (laughs) I sit down and... One by one, like the various executives are coming in. They're kind of like, hi, Liz. And they know this is a product strategy meeting and they've got the head of training there. And they're like, hi, hi. And then one particular executive came in. His name was Jerry. And he looked at me and he's like, what are you doing here? Like, you're the training manager. Like, this is a product strategy meeting. And like, this was an important moment for me because I kind of squared my shoulders, like looked at him and said, Jerry, we've got a really convoluted strategy right now that our you know, leaders around the world aren't able to understand. Like this group has got to take a lot of complex information about our products and distill it down to something that's simple and clear. And that's actually something that I'm pretty good at. And I thought it could be of help. And he still wasn't entirely convinced, but I think the president said something like, yeah, Jerry, Liz is really good at this. Like, and trust me, we could use her help. And then I just paid attention and I listened and I listened to this conversation. Now, the fact that I had taken that job teaching programming helped me to really understand what they were talking about and be trusted to even be in the room. But I'm like taking notes and I'm like, okay, what about this? And I see this pattern. So I'm now starting to reflect back to them. Well, here's this issue that I see coming up and I hear this and it seems like these seem to be the three biggest drivers. And they're like, could you say more of that? And It's a longer story, but cutting it short, after two or three more of these meetings, they finally decide that they're going to obliterate the whole strategy, rebuild it from scratch. And they're like, Liz, we want you to be the author of the strategy. 
Like we'll all give you input, but we want you to be the one that put shape to this. And it was something I was able to do. And it made a pretty big impact in the company. And I just think it's so funny that maybe the most valuable work I did for the company was work I forced myself into just a little bit. Yeah. And I wasn't forceful and I wasn't rude, but nobody asked me to do it. I just knew it was something I could be helpful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Okay. Well, so then any other examples leaping to mind in terms of a particular practice that makes a, a load of difference, a small difference with huge leverage? Mm. Um, one of the ones I found was so interesting was this, how people handle moving targets. And do you kind of stick to what you've agreed to? Like someone gave you a target. We're trying to increase market share by 12% year over year. That's like your goal. Maybe you're a business development leader. What we find is that ordinary contributors tend to stick to those targets and they stay focused. Whereas the impact players are constantly adjusting in some ways they're reactive. I wouldn't say they're reactionary, but they react differently. Like they're assuming that they're off target. So it's like the metaphor I would use here would be like a violinist. So if you play the violin, you know that you have to constantly tune that instrument. And honestly, it was kind of mysterious to me when I was younger, like maybe younger up until like just a couple of years ago when I was like, why can't they tune their instrument before they get up onto that stage? Like, why, why do they play? poorly before they play well. And it's like, because like even that movement from their backstage to center stage, they've got to tune it before they perform. And it's this tuning mentality, like lots of little small adjustments. And what we found the impact players do is they respond well to feedback, but they don't wait for feedback. They're asking for feedback before it's offered. Sean Vanderhoven is someone who works on my team. And um, when Sean started working for me, he would ask questions when he started a project. Okay, what's what's the target here? What, do we, what does a win look like? What are we trying to accomplish? And once he understood that, he would then start submitting work as part of that. And, and then he would ask a different set of questions like, are you getting what you need? What can I do differently? What do I need to change so that it better fits the need? And he does this with such frequency that he then goes and corrects his work, you know, comes back, submits it. But in the five years I've worked with Sean, I can't think of a single time I've ever had to sit down and have a tough conversation with him. I've never had to sit down and say, you know, Sean, this is off and I need you to get it back on. And it's not that he doesn't need that correction. We all do. But he always beats me to it. He's fixing and changing and adjusting before I ever ask. Like he's doing the asking and it's so easy to give him feedback. And one of the other like little distinctions that makes a really big difference is that people, these impact players aren't focusing the feedback on themselves. Like, how am I doing? What do I need to do differently? The focus is on the work. How can I make this work better? Mm-hmm. So where others are maybe reacting to feedback people give them about themselves and their performance, the impact player is getting information to help them constantly adjust and tune their work so that their work is relevant and on tune. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, Liz, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Mm. Well, maybe if there was an overarching theme that separated the impact players from 
everyone else. And I should say, it's not really about people. It's more about mindsets that we tend to operate in. It's like what separates an impact player mindset that and others tend to go in and out of from sort of a contributor mindset is how we deal with uncertainty and ambiguity. And the difference we found is that the impact players, when they encounter situations that are out of their control, mm-hmm. they tend to dive head into these situations, like the way an ocean swimmer or a surfer like sees this massive oncoming wave that's kind of scary. Like I would turn and run, panic and get tumbled in the surf, but they dive head into and through this wave and they tend to move into uncertainty and they tend to look at that uncertainty and ambiguity through, you know, an opportunity lens rather than a threat lens. Uh Like where other people say, ooh, that's uncomfortable. Roles are unclear. That's messy. That's out of my control. Let me back away from it. The impact players kind of wear opportunity goggles and they're like, oh yeah, that's messy, uncertain, uncomfortable, but let me find an opportunity to add value. Uh So they tend to bring clarity to situations that other people tend to steer clear of. Lovely. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote so that you find inspiring? Chris Jammy, find a purpose to serve, not a lifestyle to live. And when I saw that, I thought, and I just saw this today, I thought that really captures a lot of what I've learned studying these people who are having a lot of impact is that they are, they are not like pushing an agenda. They're not necessarily pursuing a lifestyle. It's they're finding a situation that needs them and contributing wholeheartedly in that. Uh-huh. Well, thank you. And now could you share a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I think maybe the one that is most useful to the work I do is is just this idea that we tend to overestimate our capability. That Hmm. I think is it the Kruger-Dunning effect. Okay. That we tend to think we're better at things than we actually are. And this is the dynamic that I've seen play out in my work kind of studying the best leaders is that when we get put into a leadership role, we tend to focus on our intent and we tend to not see our impact on others. And like most of my work is about like looking into this space between our intent and our impact, like learning not to operate based on our best intentions, but to actually operate based on the effect that we're having on others. And how about a favorite book? I'll give you one that, this is a book I like because it made me so mad. I was really jealous when I read it, like green with jealousy because the book is Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. Uh And the reason why I love it, because A, it's an amazing book and Ed Catmull is an amazing storyteller. And it's a story of Pixar, if you're not familiar with the book. So it's really like looking into like, why does Pixar consistently produce amazing films. Like, is that an accident or is there actually a system behind that? And the answer is there's a system behind it. There's a reason why it's not coincidence and it's how they lead and it's the culture they built. And the reason why this book made me so mad is I got done reading it. It was not too long after I had written Rookie Smarts that I'm like, wow, this is an amazing illustration of Rookie Smarts. Like what happens when you're new to something and the innovation that comes out of it. And it's an amazing example of what I call multiplier leadership. Leaders like Ed Catmull who use their talent and intelligence to bring out the best in others. And I'm like, 
wow, how did he do in one book what I took me two books to do? And he did it better than that. But I really love that book. And it's just, it's full of fun, interesting, very practical ways of leading. Okay. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job. Index cards. Succinct is not my strength. And so I have to work at succinct in writing and in speaking. And so I use index cards and like, when I'm pulling together like final thoughts before giving a talk or presentation, if it can't fit on the index card, it's not part of it. So I use it to really boil down my thinking. All right. And a favorite habit? I think a favorite habit would be, I guess I call it check-in before diving in. And I have to admit, like some people would say that I'm a workhorse. Like I'm definitely not a racehorse. I'm a workhorse. I'm one of those people who just like grind through stuff. And I usually like to get right to work and I'm excited about it. I jump in. And one of the things I've learned to do with my own team is before we start working on something to just take sometimes up to half of our allotted time and just check in, like, how are you? How are you doing? And, you know, it's gone well beyond pleasantries. And it's typically like a chance for people to say, you know, I'm not doing well. Mm-hmm. I'm struggling. And sometimes we've ugh, we've spent hours like we had a day block to work on something. And, and we spent hours just on how are you? Sometimes it's like, well, I'm disappointed. I thought, you know, by now I would have this done. And I I don't. And so there's been these moments where you could really check in and connect with like how people really are before we work on stuff. And it's made all the difference for our team. It's gotten us through some really tough times. Uh Thank you. And is there a key nugget you share that tends to be quoted back to you frequently? It would probably be, it would be better said than this because I, I think other people would probably say it better than this is just like, be the genius maker, not the genius. Uh It would be some version of that. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, I'm pretty easy to find. Thewisemangroup.com is a little bit of information about the work that my team and I do. Impactplayersbook.com, multipliersbook.com, I think rookiesmarts.com, rookiesmartsbook.com. I'm honestly not sure about that one. And, or like I'm at Liz Wiseman on Twitter. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Maybe a challenge and a suggestion. The challenge would be to ask yourself, what might I be doing with the very best of intentions that is a barrier to impact? Like what is preventing me from doing the most valuable, meaningful work? And it's often things that we're doing with our best intentions. If someone wants to get on the path of impact, like maybe a challenge to start here, which is to find out what's important to the people that you work for whether it's a client, a boss, internal customers or stakeholders, find out what's important to them and make it important to you. And all the right things tend to flow from that. Beautiful. All right, Liz, this has been a treat. I wish you much luck and impact in your future endeavors. Thank you. It's nice talking to you. I love what Liz had to say about working on the agenda. And because that can run counter to a lot of narrative associated with follow your passion, follow your passion, job craft, do what works for you. And so, yeah, there's some truth in some of those elements, but that's just a beautiful distinction or a paradigm shift there associated with, well, yeah, you can 
try to chase what's important to you. But if you do the job that needs doing, what really matters to leadership, suddenly you get the attention, you get the time, you get the resources. And that's a lot of fun to not have to be fighting all of those fights and dealing with those hassles and to be important and significant and work on something and then grow your influence along the way. Great distinction from Liz. I hope you dug that and more. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced or over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP719. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> Auto Trader.